We've read a very interesting passage that we are going to analyze step by step, and then after that, I am very sure that you are going to be blessed of God. The, the, the passage of scripture we read is very familiar, but the problem is that it's a parable that has been extremely misunderstood because for those people, and I understood, mom, you're in school for um, uh, counseling, and, you know, when you look at the secular sociologists, they want to look at that passage in the context of only helping people, and that becomes the end in itself. They look at it in the sense that, and that's where we even have a lot of, whether it's non-profit organizations called Good Samaritan, because they have made it look like the purpose of that parable was just to be a good person who is helping people in the society, and that is it. But that was not the purpose. We are going to see that as we proceed. And even though that is important, but that is not the reason for this parable. In fact, some other people have even made it look like it's for the purpose of going beyond racial and other kind of barriers. And that is why a Samaritan was able to help a Jew who was wounded. That's a good thing, but that was not the purpose. But then, how does this passage begin? It begins that, behold, a certain lawyer. Meaning, look, I want to draw your attention to a certain lawyer. A man that is educated in the law. Not in the civil or criminal law, but well-versed with the knowledge of the Old Testament law. Somebody who was knowledgeable. He gets to a point of trying to draw attention to himself by doing what? The Bible says, by coming to test Jesus. So the Bible says, behold, a certain lawyer stood up. I'm trying to assume that Jesus Christ was making a presentation probably somewhere in between Jerusalem and Jericho, maybe in Bethany. And then, as he was speaking, a certain lawyer decided that I'm going to bring my confrontation to this young rabbi who is not well educated and vast in the things of the law. And I'm going to prove that I know this. Because the Bible says he decided to tempt Jesus. He was testing him. So, and then you're going to see this. The Bible says that, and then he says, Master, what shall I do to inherit the eternal life? He's asking a good question, but the wrong intentions. Guess what? He's trying to ask about 
this question so that it can prove that I am the one who understands what the law says. So I'm going to show him that everything he has been teaching, he has no clue what it is. But he forgot that Jesus did not only know about the law, but it was the law himself. He forgot. But he says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? And then Jesus, who was a master evangelist in terms of personal evangelism, he engages him in this dialogue. Verse 26, he puts it back to him. And he said unto him, that's Jesus says unto him, what is written in the law? So he said, you're asking me what must I do? And you are the lawyer. You know these things. So tell me, what is written in the law? Let's go back to the book. What's written in the law? And how do you read it? How do you understand it? So he's asking the question. You ask me, what must I do to be saved? The question is, what is written in the law? And how do you understand it? Because you have grown as a lawyer and a teacher who knows the law, but then the question is, do you have an understanding of what you know? Because the challenge is that he knew the letter, but did not know the spirit behind it. Because the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So he's confronting him that yes, you are well versed with the things of the law. You understand these things. But do you know the revelation behind what you know? Yes, what is written. But how do you understand it? Do you get it? And that is why in my presentation today, I have one prayer. That God open the eyes of our understanding. That we may see what you put in, in front of us. For the glory of God. Because we can have the eyes. We can have an understanding. We can be so knowledgeable. And we can be so scholarly. But we can miss the point. So the question is, what does the law say? And how do you get it? Do you understand this? The Bible says in verse 27, and he, meaning the lawyer, answering, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as well. This guy is educated. I can tell you that. Because he's summarizing hundreds of laws in the Old Testament into two. Isn't that great? And he begins it very well. You shall love the Lord your God. Meaning, there is no other God. And anything else you see are the works of men, and those are idols. And therefore, there is only one God to be worshipped, Jehovah God. You shall love the Lord, your God. Love him. It looks so easy and so simple, but I came to tell you today, child of God, there is only one God. 
I say there's only one God, the Lord God Almighty. Besides him, above him, below him, there is no other God. And anything else you see, those are idols. Jehovah Yahweh, the unchanging changer, the Lord God Almighty is the one to be worshipped. You shall love the Lord your God. I love that. But that is not enough. But also your neighbor. Guess what? The story is going to get better as we proceed. So if you see your neighbor dozing, just tell him. Just stay with him for a few minutes. Please. Because you are, not gonna, you are going to see something very important. The Bible says, verse 28, And he, meaning Jesus, he said unto him, You have answered it right. This do and you shall live. So, you ask the question. You are a teacher of the law, right? You're asking a question. What must I do to inherit the kingdom? What does the law say? You've said it right. Go do it. Now, the doing part is where the problem gets in. Praise the Lord. Now, go do it. You know it, right? You teach it every day. You show people, you, you profess it, you say it, go do it, and you shall live. You know, I mean, I, I give this lawyer a lot of credit, but sometimes I don't think he's very wise. Can I show you how? He's asking a question, what must I do to inherit the? He thinks that inheriting the kingdom has anything to do with what you do. He probably wanted to ask the question, what must I do to merit? Because inheritance is by virtue the right of birth, right? You don't have to do anything. You are born into this household, you inherit your father's kingdom. Amen? But he's asking, what must I do? Because he's used to the do's and the don'ts. And thinking that the do's and the don'ts are going to guarantee you the kingdom. But he says, okay. Let me see. The inheritance of the kingdom is just by virtue of you being a son. To them that believed him, he gave them power to become the sons of God. And they are going to inherit the kingdom by that right. Amen. It has nothing to do with what you do. And therefore the question, even though it has something legally right, but it's spiritually wrong. And that is why the war that you see Jesus Christ facing, even when he's dealing with Nicodemus, the issue was between the law and the spirit. Don't you see this? And therefore, there's a confrontation here that there are some barriers because we have put a wall based on what we have been taught and the things we know. But there's something deeper behind what you read. Let me not distract myself. Follow me now. The Bible says, go and do this. He has already trapped himself, right? He was testing Jesus, but he has already come and trapped himself. And then it's like, okay, I thought I was wiser. And then because he's educated, he comes up with another scheme. 
Verse 29. But he, meaning the lawyer, willing to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Okay? I've put myself in a trap, but I want to get a way of getting out. So he wants to justify himself by getting out of this trap. Because he's been told, go, do likewise. But he knows it's not easy. And therefore he wants to justify himself. If you are like me, you know how much we look for the scriptures to justify the wrongdoing. Don't look at me like you don't do that. You're busy searching the scripture to make sure you're smooth and you're guilt, right? You do something wrong and you're like, let me look for a scripture that justifies me. So he's trying to justify himself. Who is my? Praise God. You know how sometimes you look for scriptures to so even Jesus, you know, he turned water into wine. So now, think we can take a little bit. Well, I'm not talking about that. But what I'm saying is this. That's the wrong example to give. I don't want to be stoned before I finish. So, what I'm saying is this. That we try to justify ourselves on how to get out of something that God wants us to do. Because he's telling us, go do likewise. But he's looking for a way out. Who is my? Because I know there's no way someone can measure if I love God. I can easily tell you I love God. But about loving the neighbor, it's something you can see. And therefore, he does not even talk about loving God. He's now talking about who is mine. I can easily stand here and tell you, I love the Lord with all my heart, right? But about loving my neighbor, you will see. Who is mine? Who is my neighbor? It's a tough question. That's where the story starts getting better. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Who is my neighbor? Why? Because the only way that the first commandment of loving God is going to make sense is how you love another person. Because how do you claim you love God if you don't love the person that you can see? Talk to me, friends. How do you claim that you love somebody or you love God that you have never seen, but the person you see every single day, you've never even dared to love them? So the question is, who is my neighbor? Do you know what he expected? The person down the street. The person that's next to your house, right? But Jesus does not go that route. Watch this now. The Bible says, and Jesus, whew, I love the way Jesus presented the gospel. He says, and Jesus answering, he said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Not a, I'm not talking about the Jericho in Nairobi. And, and fell among the thieves, which stripped him of his Raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now he's talking about there's a man coming, walking alone from Jerusalem down to where? To Jericho. 
Jerusalem, you know, it's a higher up, about 2,600 uh, feet above sea level, down to Jericho, which is about, I believe, 800 feet below sea level. So it's just walking down. But then he fell in the hands of robbers. And those of you who have had a privilege to go to Israel and, or, or even have read, you understand that how that terrain from, you know, uh, up Jerusalem down, it's so crooked in a way that even they had caves where, you know, even robbers can hide. Therefore, it was a dangerous place, right? Dangerous place. So this man is going down, and then he fell in the hands of robbers. They beat him, they wounded him, and they left him to die. They bruised him, left him half dead. Possibly, they took everything he had. And now, let's see what happens. And by chance, there came down a certain priest that way. When he saw him, he passed on the other side. A priest coming from where? Talk to me. Coming from where? He is coming from doing ministry in the temple. Having served. And then he comes as he's walking down. He sees a man that has been wounded, has been bruised. He's bleeding, left to die. After he has ministered, possibly talking about helping the people that are wounded and the people that are half dead and everything. And now he comes face to face with the doing part. Whew, glory to God. A priest that has under, understands the message preaches wonderfully. But then he comes face to face with what? The doing part. He looks at the man that is down there who has been wounded and left to die. The Bible says that he passed on the other side. Why? Because that person who was dead there did not look like ministry to him. He looked at him, but he did not want to even contaminate himself because he's a man of God who has come from ministering and therefore he does not want to contaminate himself. So he walks aside and passes by, leaving him to die. Follow me, child of God. The next verse the Bible says, and likewise a Levite, when he was at the same place, he came and looked at him, and he passed by on the other side. A Levite from the house of Levi. Levi. These were the servants of the priests. In fact, they were the people that were leading worship in the temple in Jerusalem. So they walked down, and as the Levite walks and sees the man that has been left down there, down to die, the Bible says he walks aside. Why? This does not look like worship. So he walks away. Follow me, child of God. He has come from the temple. Worshipping and leading music so powerfully. How God has called us to go and minister to the world. But an opportunity arises and the Bible says he looked at it. 
walks away. Why? It does not look like music to me. That does not look like ministry to me. What is Jesus trying to do? He's trying to answer a question. Who is my neighbor? Hallelujah. Are you following me? But let's move a little bit further so that we can get this message. The Bible says in verse 33, but the story changes now. But a certain Samaritan. But a certain Samaritan. You know the story about the Samaritan and the Jews? They hated one another. These were hybrid people. They were not like the Jews. They were not the chosen people. But he comes to this place. The Bible says in verse 33, as he journeyed, he came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. When he saw this man, who is not of the same tribe, the man that is not of the same race, the man that does not look like him, the Bible says something happened. Deep down him, he was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion. This is a man that was on his journey. He was going somewhere, whether it was a business trip or something, but the Bible says when he got there, he saw. Can I tell you something that is similar to all these three people? They saw. Because the Bible says when the priest got there, he saw. When the Levite got there, he saw. When the Samaritan got there, he saw. But the Bible says there's a difference between seeing and going beyond seeing. The Bible says he was moved with compassion. Let me show you the difference between compassion and mercy. Or to pity somebody. Compassion is what this man did. Follow me now. The Bible says, and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him on an inn and took care of him. Compassion is whereby you see a need and you respond to that need by doing something. You all missed that, but that's okay. I said compassion is whereby you don't just see and sympathize. There's a difference between sympathizing with somebody and having compassion. Compassion is way beyond. The power therein propels you to move forward and take action. The Bible says he was moved with compassion. And that compassion alone made him stop his journey. I cannot proceed. 
It is possible that this man, the only thing that is left between him and death is for me to take action. I am willing to take an action. The Bible says, child of God, please don't, don't, don't doze on me, get this. The Bible says he was moved with compassion. He did not ask this himself. Does he come from my country? Does he come from Machakos? But he said, this is somebody that is about to die. Could it be if I did something, he will live again? He did not tell himself that the men of the cloth, the men of God have passed and done something and therefore there is nothing I could do. But he did something. How many of us have failed to take action because the ones we expected to do something did nothing? Talk to me now. Do you know what Jesus is trying to answer? Who Follow me. Follow me. I have enough time to bring this to your attention. The Bible says, he took him in there and said, take care of him. And tomorrow, and when he departed, he took two pens and gave him to the host and said unto him, take care of him and whatsoever you spend more, I will come and pay you back. This man, take care of him at my expense. Now, verse 36. Which now of these three do you think was a neighbor and to him who fell among the thieves. Now, the, the original question was, who is my? The expectation is, the neighbor has to be somebody. Right? But Jesus is asking this, who of these three is the neighbor? The, the, the Bible says in verse um, 37, and he said unto him, it is the one who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said unto him, Go and do likewise. Amen. What is Jesus saying? I can never show you who the neighbor is until you become a neighbor. Oh, you missed that. Because, because the expectation was that you show me my neighbor. And then he says, let's, let's look. You have to be a neighbor to somebody in order for you to understand who your neighbor is. Because he says, who of these three is the neighbor? Is the one who showed compassion. Therefore, the definition of who a neighbor is was changed by the power of compassion. 
Whoever that you have showed compassion to, that you have extended, it has nothing to do with your geographical distance. It has nothing to do with who lives next door to you. It has nothing to do who sits next to you in your church. It has everything to do with the one that you, you are moved with compassion to show mercy on. Are you getting the point? Why? Do you know what Jesus is saying? I can never show you who your neighbor is until I understand that you have it in you. Because you can never give what you don't have. You do not expect somebody to show love unless they have love in them. You can never expect somebody to have mercy on somebody until they have received it. You can never expect somebody to show grace to other people unless that grace has been embraced by them. And that is why I came to speak to you, child of God, that most of us here have not given because we don't have. The prayer of my heart today is that God open our hearts that we may embrace the love and the compassion that you have showered upon us so that when we have it in abundance, we shall be able to give it to the city of Kansas for the glory of God. Because the people that have bitterness, that is what they give. The people that have hatred, that's what they give. Because it is out of the abundance of your heart that the mouth is going to speak. And therefore, you can never say something you don't have. And so, if you have to understand who your neighbor is, who you need to show love to, you have to pray that your heart may be transformed. That is where the gospel begins. Why? Because it's until we understand that we have received the grace of God freely that we are going to share that grace to other people. Because when it comes to the love of God, we do not take the initiative. When it comes to the love of God, the Bible says he first loved us. So for us, what we do, we respond to that love. Because he has already loved us. Oh, you missed that. I said, he has already loved us. I say, the Lord God Almighty, whoever is in the house today, whether you are born again or not, I came to tell you, the love of God has already been extended to us. The only thing that is remaining is for you to respond to him and say, yes, Lord, I love you. With the love of God, you can only respond. But with the love of your neighbor, you have to take a step. They don't have to love you first. They don't have to understand that they're the neighbors. It is you to take the initiative and show it. The challenge we have is because we only love those people that love us. The question is, how different is that from the people of the world? Because even the people of the world out there, they love those who love them. In order for us to show a difference and for this church to continue prospering and growing the way we are is to pray that God may your love abound. And that is going to make a difference. That's going to make a difference. Pastor, I think I'm done.
Is that how you finish? Okay. <laughs> Hallelujah. Glory to God. Hallelujah. <laughs> There's something happening when you respond to the Spirit of God. Is it okay if we stand up? Let's stand up in the presence of God. Ooh, glory to God. I'm telling you, there is something powerful about this story. There is no better way I've ever known how to share the gospel apart from understanding that it has to begin with me being transformed. I cannot continue giving excuses and looking for reasons to escape responsibility of loving God. It is time for me to respond. And today, as I speak to you, whether intellectual or otherwise, the question I have for you is this simple question. Who is your neighbor? And what is expected of you as a child of God is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. And love your neighbor as well. <clears throat> because when the world is going to see what we have done to one another, they are going to praise our Father in heaven. I know there are so many people that have wronged you, right? Oh, don't look at me like that doesn't happen here. I know there are so many people that have wronged you. But don't pay evil for evil. Because God has transformed you. Do you know that you as a believer, the cross you carry, <laughs> he said, carry your cross and do what? That you, ha you, you have to love even the unlovable if there is something like that. Like, <laughs> like even the people that have wronged you so bad, but part of the cross is that I love you because he first loved us. Amen. Amen.